Now, last week when I left the service, I had been wearing a new pair of shoes. By the time I got in my car, way out in the right-hand corner of the parking lot, I still wouldn't have had any scuff marks on them because I was, I was just walking on air after the weekend that we had as a church. You know, we had 40-plus men go away on a retreat, learning how to be more like Christ by loving their wives the way that God wants them to. We had had 70-plus students and leaders away learning what it means to kind of step up and grow up in their faith in Christ. And they had made tremendous commitments, including five of them giving their lives to Christ. And then we came here to our service. We had, we had a number of the students who worship with us from WPI who had been away on a weekend retreat themselves, asking the question, how do I really love God from my heart? You know? And then we joined together here, and we had great attendance. And, and, vir- and virtually almost everyone said, I'm going to offer up a prayer to God for him to do something in my life that I've never let him do before. And we signified that by filling out a prayer card and coming forward, and this basket was lying, sitting on the front table. And literally by the time we got done with our second service, this was just totally full. Just no, really no room for another card. And so as I walked out the door, I'm like, wow. I mean, God's at work. I got to tell you, though, by the time I got to the sign, I had a different thought. Many of us probably had the same kind of thoughts. Been there, done that, not a whole lot changed. What's going to make it different this time around? And some of it, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't listen to music a lot. I usually listen to music when I run because I hate to run, so it gives me something to do in place of that. So, but... But some of you are familiar with the song by Casting Crowns called The Altar and the Door, right? I mean, I, I think it's a pretty old song, but their lyrics go something like this. It's, it, it, it depicts a person who has just responded to God and they're at the altar at the front of the church and they're literally just on their knees in prayer and they're just crying their eyes out. And this, and, and this is the, the, resp- the words that says, Lord, this time I'll make it right. Here at the altar, I lay my life. Your kingdom come, but... My will was what was done. My heart is broken as I cry, like so many times before. But, but my, eyes, my eyes are dry before I even get off the floor. Oh, Lord, I, I try, but this, Jesus, this time, Jesus, how can I be sure that I won't lose my follow-through between the altar and the door? And so by the time I got home, the sermon series that I wanted to do, I had to kind of push aside. And I really had to ask myself the question, how is it and what is it that you and I can do to cultivate in our lives the ability to actually sustain spiritual commitment? Be honest, many of you made commitments last week. How many of you prayed that prayer every single day this week? We got a few. This is great. But for many of us, I mean, we, we, we made this commitment, but then somewhere in the midst of the week, it just kind of gets all gets pushed aside, right? <laughs> I went to a dermatology, to a dermatologist one time, no, no offense, John, all right? And, and I had an 8.45 appointment. This office opened at 8.30 in the morning. So I get there at 8.40, I walk up to the counter to sign in, and there's a sign that says we're, 90, we're running 90 minutes behind. 
You've only been open for 15 minutes. How can you be 90 minutes behind already, you know? But many of us, that's the way we feel like our lives go, don't we? We wake up in the morning, we already feel like we're two hours late. And a day just kind of goes, and then we just plop into bed at the end of the day, and we start all over again. And we wonder why we can't sustain spiritual commitment. So I'd like to talk about sustaining spiritual commitment. And this is actually one sermon in two parts. Get part A this week. Next week, you get part B, okay? Because I'm going to take my time and work through this stuff. And, and, um, and I've given it a title called Staying in the Race and Keeping the Pace. It's not original with me. Last, spent the last day and a half at, at the Baptist Convention of New England's annual meeting. We met down in Westboro, and um, there were about 250 to 300 people there for, for a day and a half. And, and uh, um, one of the pastors preached a message about keep, staying in the race and keeping the pace. And I said, I'm going to steal that title, you know? Now, he's an African-American guy. I can't preach like him, so I ain't going to try, all right? But it, it, it was a tremendous message to us. And, but I, I want to talk about what does it really take to get in the race and stay in the race and keep up the pace. And, and I, I'm going to use the book of Malachi. I'd love it if you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Malachi. So on page 808 in your pew Bibles, it's the very last book in the Old Testament. Okay, Malachi. Malachi is the prophet. His name means my messenger. So this is the idea is that, the, that I am the Lord's messenger. Page 808. It'd be really great this week if you could just take some time and sit down and just read through the book of Malachi. I think as we talk about some things that you'll, it'll kind of bring some things to light and you'll be able to get more from it because we're not going to work through every single verse. We just, we're just not going to be able to do that. But let me give you a little bit of orientation so we know where Malachi is coming from as we leap into the text. Now, in the Old Testament, there are really kind of three categories of prophets. You know, Elisha and Elijah and those guys are kind of their own kind of guys. But once you get into you got the pre-exile prophets. Jeremiah's, the Isaiah's, those guys, right? This is before God took the nation of Judah, which was around Jerusalem, took them into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. There were those who proclaimed prior to that. That was Jeremiah and Isaiah and others. Then there are those who actually were called into the prophetic role and spoke while they were in exile. Those are Daniel, Ezekiel. Then you have those who follow up after the exile. And that's where a lot of the little minor prophets come in and, it, and Ezra and Nehemiah fits into this, this time frame as well. And Malachi belongs in this group, okay? Now, by the time Malachi proclaims his message to the people, they've been back in the land for almost 100 years, okay? The, 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 the nation of Judah just wasn't responding at all to God's intervention in their lives. God used the Babylonians to fulfill his prophecy. I'm going to take you away. And that kind of happened in some stages. But the ultimate part of that occurred in 586 B.C. where the Babylonians marched into Jerusalem, hauled virtually everybody who was left away, and they destroyed the temple. No more sacrifices. Gone. And that was the foundation of their relationship with God was the temple in the, the offering of sacrifices. For a number of years, they're in exile. God fulfills his promise to bring them back. He uses the Persians under King Cyrus to, to go and, and, and they defeat the Babylonians and he writes a decree, the King Cyrus does, that the Jews can return to the land. And that occurs in 500 and, 
36 B.C. That's by, underneath a guy by the name of Jerubbabel. And they go, he's a son of a, a grandson of a king and et cetera, and he leads this group back to Jerusalem. And what they managed to do is they managed to get a makeshift temple up. It's, it's nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple, right? I mean, it's like if, if you guys came out here one time and we met in one of the sheds out back, all right? That, that's our new church, okay? I mean, this is a whole different scale, right? But they got a temple up and they're offering sacrifices. The years tick by. Still not a good place. No walls around the city, any of that stuff. Ezra and Nehemiah step into the equation. One of them comes in like 530-something, and the other one comes like in 456, I think, and the other one comes like in 442. Like They're a little over a decade apart, and they come back, and things improve quite a bit. But then Nehemiah gets called back to the capital of Persia, and the people are kind of left on their own, and it's into that moment that Malachi speaks. About 100 years later, it's not a good time. Even though the Persians had let them go back, they were taxing them heavily. If you read those stories, you know that all the nations around them hated the Jews. And they made life as hard as they could for them. And so they were in a time when things were, were just economically and relationally and culturally, everything was just depressed and stressed. Sound familiar? <laughs> you know, it was so bad that actually a number of Jews were selling their daughters into slavery in order to pay their debts, in order to be able to put food on the table. It's an amazing time. So it's into that experience where the people had kind of really settled into a spiritual malaise, if you will. They were just kind of spiritually depressed. They didn't have a lot of expectations. They didn't have a lot of hope about any of that kind of stuff. And it's into that environment that Malachi speaks. I want to pick up with verse 6. And I want to read down through the end of the chapter of chapter 1. And then make a couple of points to you about what I think we need to cultivate in our lives that was missing in their lives if we're really going to be people who can sustain spiritual commitment. If we're going to be able to stay in the race and keep up the pace. Then we'll look at verses 10 through 17 of chapter 2 and then we'll call it a day and we'll move on next week to, to the other chapters. So here's, here's God speaking to the people. He's having a conversation. God's having a conversation with the nation. And he says, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's your fear of me, says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name? Yet yeah, yeah, you ask, how have we despised your name? He said, well, you, you present defiled food on my altar. You ask, well, how have we defiled you? Well, the Lord's table, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible. See, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. <laughs> Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of hope in the image, host, the imagery there says, Take, go ahead and take that lame goat down to the governor's office and try to use it to pay your taxes. See if he'll take it. You know? And now you ask for God's favor? <laughs> After you've done all of that, you ask for God's favor? Will he be gracious to us since this has come from your hands? Will he show, you any, show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of hosts. I wish one of you would just shut the temple doors 
so you no longer kindle, kindle a useless fire on my altar. I wish the custodian would just lock the doors and throw away the keys, and you guys couldn't even get in here anymore. Get in here anymore. He says, says for I, I, my, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will accept no offering from your hands. For my name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it when you say. And the word profaning means there that you are wounding it. You're stabbing it. You're beating it to death. Says, But you're profaning my name when you say the Lord's table is defiled and his product, its food is contemptible. You also look at you also say, look, what a nuisance, you know? And you scorn it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering? And I'm I'm supposed to accept that from your hands, asks the Lord. So the deceiver is cursed, who has an acceptable male in his flock, and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. I just want to offer you a couple of points from this. And if you and I are going to be the kind of people who get in the race, stay in the race, and keep up the pace, if we're going to let our prayer requests really have an, we're going to, we're going to cultivate an environment in our own hearts where God can actually answer those prayer requests, one of the things that we have to do is we have to realize that God really is God. Now, let that sink in for a minute. The, what, what, this, what the prophet's saying, it says, you, you guys can show up and you can say, well, God of wonders beyond this galaxy. And then you walk out the door and you treat me like you can do whatever you want and I just have to take it. It says, you call me father, but you don't give me any honor. You know? I mean, in these days, fathers had real power. They brought you into the world. They had the right to take you out of the world. I mean, this isn't the kind of thing now where if you yell at your kids too loud, DCF shows up and wonders what's going on. It's a whole different environment. These guys had the power of life and death. So you, I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in a time when my father was a farm boy from Missouri, okay? So corporal punishment was something they did, okay? So at my house, there were state. You know, you could put up a stink, but when he reached for his belt, you know, and then, and by the time, if he got his belt to this stage, you were dead. You know, it just, you just, it just was, you know, and so there might be times when you didn't honor your parents, but when he reached for the belt, he got your attention and the honor started showing up real fast. You know what I mean? And, but sometimes we act as though we, we call God father, we call him our heavenly father, but then we, we, we kind of act like, you know, many of us, the sweetest memories we have of our childhood is the stuff we did that our parents never found out about, right? I mean, it's not the way it works with God. God knows everything that we do. And, and somehow we, we step into this. We're, we're going to lay all these commitments before God. We're going to bury stuff under stones. And then we're thinking, you know what? God's not going to care if I just blow this off by Wednesday. What's he going to do about it? And so the imagery that he uses here says, you know, you call me father, but you give me no honor. You call me master, but you don't have enough fear of me that you'll actually do what you're supposed to do. It says, let me give you an example. It says, you guys are supposed to offer an offering, right? So what are you bringing me? You're bringing me the stuff you don't want no more. 
You go out and you herd and you see the old she-goat who no longer produces any milk, who, who, who can't bear any more offspring, and it's not going to taste very good. And you say, this thing's worthless. Let's take it down to the altar and we'll offer it up to God. Or you know what? You'll say, you know what? I need to offer a sacrifice, but I don't want to give up my stuff. I'll just steal it from my neighbor's flock and I'll bring it down. You know? Or, you know what? I, I, I got this male goat and, and, and it's gone blind and it's kind of, you know, I can't breed it anymore because nobody will pay me. I'll just offer that up. And he says, well, now you'll give that to me, but try taking that down to the tax office, to the governor's place, and see if he'll take that in lieu of payment. You know, imagine if you sat down with an IRS auditor, right? And the IRS auditor says, you know, well, we're a little confused here about your, your tax return. You know, you, we show that you had taxable income last year of, let's just say, $50,000. So, and you're in the 15% bracket, you, but that means you owe $7,500. But, but you only gave me $500. You only paid $500. Well, what, what's up with that? And you sit down and you start saying to the IRS auditor, you know, well, you know, the kids really need a braces this year. You know how much braces cost these days? I mean, I pay more for my kid's face than I do for my car payment. It's expensive. I just didn't have the money. Besides that, you know, one of the kids is getting ready to go to school, and we had to save money for college, you know, and, and we've been in the house for 10 years, and it really needs a lot of updating and had to do a lot of work to it. And, you know, since this is a great market to buy something new and bigger, we're thinking about doing that, so we've been setting money. Th- so we just didn't have any money for you. You think that's going to go over with the IRS agent? They're, what are they going to do? They're going to slap the cuffs on you, quote, unquote, and, and they're going to lower the hammer. Think about the same conversation with God. God says, you know, I arranged this job for you, and you get $1,000 per paycheck. Now, I invented math, and I know how to do math, and 10% of 1,000 is 100, but you only put $10 in the plate. What's up with that? Well, you know, God, my, my car insurance is due. You know, and, and if I don't have car insurance... And I get in an accident, I might not be able to afford to fix my car. If I can't fix my car, I'm going to lose my job. And you gave me the job in the first place. Besides, if, I, if the accident's my fault, I might get sued. I might lose everything. So how can you, you think that argument, but we do that to God all the time, don't we? We don't try it with the IRS, but we'll try it with God. You know, we, we need to realize that God is really God. He, he's not just something, you know, one of the biggest arguments in our nation's origin, one of the things they fought about the most was whether or not the United States should have a standing army. What they really wanted, a lot of people, what they wanted was a volunteer militia, right? And there were others who were arguing for a standing army. Now, the, dis- the difference was that a volunteer militia, you could call them up, they could go off the battle, they could get to the front, they could look around and say, You know what, it's harvest time, I'm going home. They were volunteers. A standing army means that you were enlisted and you were there, you left, they shot you. Too many of us have a mindset when it comes to God that we're in a volunteer militia and we're not in a standing army. And I got to tell you, as as long as we have that mindset in our heads, we are never going to sustain spiritual commitment. 
Never. Because there's always going to be something else that's put us 90 minutes behind before the day's ever gotten started. You know what I mean? Is that, is that making any sense? The other day I was, I was going down to, to Worcester to see several different people, and I was going down 190, and I got off at exit 1. Some of you know it's just kind of like a straight ramp right out, and you come into this big line thing. So I get to the end of the ramp, and I'm doing about 45. But right at the end of the ramp, it's a 30-mile-an-hour speed zone. And, and then, all of a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, looking in my mirror to see if anybody's coming. I can slide in. I look up, and there's this guy standing in the middle of the street like this. And I'm like, I'm thinking, who is that? So I start to slow down. So I don't want to hit this guy. Except, and, then it, and then it dawned on me that he had a badge on. Now, I had the option. I mean, he was on his feet, right? I'm driving a car. I don't know. They, they do this in Rwanda, right? Cops do not carry guns, and they do not have cars. But, I mean, did I pull over? Yeah, I pulled over. But Stop! And he points. And I go over like this, and they walk around the back of my car, and he comes up on my driver's side window, and he says, your car up to date on registration? Because our sticker had fallen off of the plate. I said, I think so. My wife's supposed to do that. <laughs> And to her credit, it was up to date. So I didn't get a thing. So, so then the guy, I said, I, I think so. And, then, and so then he, he turns the radar gun around and he shows me. He says, what does that say? I said, 46. So the speed limit is 30. I said, yes. <laughs> so can I see your license and registration? So, you know, I, I pull it out and, and I give him my registration. I give him my license, and et cetera. And I never had a cop do this before. Just as he's about ready to turn and go back to his car, you know, it says, wait here. He says, what do you do for a living? And I kind of go, I pass a church. You know, and he had mercy on me. He only gave me a warning. So uh, thank, thank the Lord. We don't mess around with the cops, do we? He's not even in a car or whatever, but because they got authority, you know, you, you fight the law, you're going to lose, you know? But somehow or another, we think we can just Mickey Mouse around with God. And it, we're never going to sustain any spiritual commitment doing that. Boy, the way I'm going, I might have to make this a three-part sermon. Here we go. Second point. Not only do you have to realize that God is really God, and you have to treat him as so, but you've got to give God your best. You've got to give God your best. I want to tell you, if you're bringing the stuff down to God that you can do without, you're never going to sustain spiritual commitment. If you're just looking around in your schedule to see what you can spare, and that's what you're going to give to God, you can kiss sustaining spiritual commitment goodbye. If you're just looking around for the lame mare, the blind you know, goat, or whatever, or looking at what you can, you're never going to sustain spiritual commitment. You're just not. That's what these people were doing. It's hard times. God hasn't done enough. You know what? God will just take what I'll give him. Whenever you and I are in a position where we're just kind of giving God whatever we think we can spare, we're we're not treating God as God, and we're not investing our best, and we're not going to sustain spiritual commitment. We're just not. And i got to tell you, like these people, we could really rationalize this away, can we not? I mean, they could look around and say, hey, listen, we're, we're selling our daughters off into slavery just to make sure we got some rice on the table. 
How is it that God can expect me to give up my best goat to him? Kind of idea. Now what God's looking on the other end saying, the reason they don't have enough great goats is because they're not giving me their best goat to start with. Do you know what I mean? And it's, but it's interesting that we, we often think we can give God our seconds and our thirds and our fourths with all kinds of excuses as to why we're doing it, and yet somehow or another God's going to honor it. Now, Eric over here is a COO of an international company. So imagine you got a plant in China that's not doing so well. Maybe the last 18 months it's really kind of gone downhill. So you hop in a plane, you fly over there, right? And you sit down with the plant manager. You say, well, we're looking at this. Things aren't going so well. What, what's the story? And so first of all, what are you doing? And the guy, well, you know, we sent you a strategy paper on what our new corporate strategy was. It sounds like you haven't implemented any of it. And the guy says to you, I don't really like to read. Sound familiar? God gives us a strategy for sustaining commitment. It's called the scriptures. I don't really like to read. Then, then they said, well, you know, we noticed that your attendance is really kind of going down. You're not, you're not at the office. You know, it's hard to get around to China. And it rains a lot. I don't like to go out in the rain. You know, and, and even when you're here, you're not as productive as you were. Well, you know, nobody really appreciates me. You know, and the place has gotten really big, and I don't know everybody anymore. And I don't like that, so I just huddle in my office and don't say nothing. I mean, how long is that guy going to be your plant manager? Probably not even by the time you leave the door, he's going to be gone, right? We use all that kind of stuff with God all the time, don't we? I don't like big crowds. Or it's not a big enough church, I can't hide enough. Or I don't like to read. You know, we, we can come up with all kinds of reasons. I want to tell you, if we're not investing our best in God, there's no way we're going to sustain spiritual commitment. Just not. Just not. Sometimes or another we get in those conversations, and that's exactly what these, these people in the book of Malachi were doing. They're, they're coming, they're laying on the altar, and they're crying out to God, God, you've got to do better for us. So it's just like we've had one of these conversations with God, and he says, well, you know, I gave you the good book, and I don't like to read. You know, I gave you a fellowship to be a part of. I don't really like people. You know, and we just go into all this stuff, and we say, but, but God, I really want your best. Can you just pour some more into me, would you? It, 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 it's, it's ludicrous. And until you and I are ready to sign on the dotted line and say, I'm going to give God the best time, the best energy, the best input in my life, forget it. We're not going to sustain spiritual commitment. I know that's true of me, and I believe it's true of you. And it was true of the guys in the name of, in the days of Malachi. I'm going to push this through to one last point. I'll probably come back to this next week as well. Because I know some of you, if you walk out here without the blank fall written in, you're going to go nuts all week long, all right? <laughs> Others of you don't even know what I'm talking about. you got that stuck in your back pocket, or you've turned it into a plane, and you're ready. Anyway, you have to excel at the always things. Let me just read to you what's going on here. Verse 10 of chapter 2. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously, treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously, and, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. 
To the man who does this, may the Lord cut off any descendants from the tents of Jacob, even if they present an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is another thing you do. You, you cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning. In other words, you're really asking God to intervene for you to, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Yet, yet you ask, for what reason? And the Lord says, because, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't the one God make us with a remnant of didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. If he hates and if he hates and divorces his wife, and some of your translations say, you know, God hates divorce, you know, and, and probably both translations are potential. It says, if he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Here's what's going on, okay, in this text. The people of God are standing before him at his altar saying, God, you made promises to us. You entered into a covenant with us, and you're not keeping your end of the bargain. And God's saying, look who's talking. Look who's talking. You made a covenant to your wife, and you know what you're doing? Your wife gets older. You're, you're getting rid of her. You're divorcing her. And then you're going out and marrying a younger foreign woman who's not even a follower of me. And, and God's saying, I cannot keep my covenant to you in the way that you would like if you're not going to keep your covenants with one another. And, and what I look in that text says, if you and I are really going to sustain spiritual commitment to small stuff, matters. We have to excel at the always stuff. Let me give you three big categories. One, okay, is this, your relationship with yourself. If you are going to be a person that God can fulfill his covenant with, he can answer the prayers, he can do these great things, he can make us walk on water. If we're going to stay in the race and keep the pace, we have to be the kind of people we're growing in Christian character. We, in relationship to ourselves, we have to be faithful to who we are in Christ. Secondly, we have to be faithful. We have to excel always in our relationship with others. Our spouses, our parents, our children, our siblings, our fellow students, our colleagues, right on down. We have to be people who excel in relationships with other people. We have to be people who love, be people of mercy. And you can just go right on down the line. You also have to excel in your relationship with God. You just have to be people of prayer. You have to be in the book. You have to be in fellowship with other believers. You have to be devoted to the disciples, to the apostles' teachings, if you will, right on down the line. And we have to be faithful in that stuff. You know, and listen, I feel pressure every single week to try to keep you guys awake. You know, so I try to not be a talking head up here who's reading monotone. Sometimes I'll do nutsy stuff. I haven't resorted to sticking pencils in my ear yet, but so I might have to do that down the road. I got to tell you, on the other end, you have to come ready and eager and alert 
And it can't be one of these things, well, I know I'm sleepy on Sunday mornings, but Saturday night live's on on Saturdays. You know, it keeps me up late. And I, I'm just always sleepy, so you know what? If the pastor doesn't hit it or if the heat's up a little bit like it is today, I'm gone. Yeah, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You've got to excel at the always things. You know, and, and anyways. So the only question that really probably hits us this morning is, do we really want to stay in the race? And do we really want to keep the pace? That's a question I can answer for myself. It's not a question I can answer for you. Let's pray together for just a minute. Got a lot here. And I know you're going to speak to us next week about these same things. But I, I, I would pray that every single one of us would just walk out of here with one action item. Let me say, you know, this is a way that I've not really been treating God as God in my life. And I'm going to change that. And God, as we make that vow, let us keep it quickly, like the book of Ecclesiastes challenges us to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.